Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode three hundred and twenty-three. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. The logo was designed by Dave Vrabel, who's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks also to All About Jazz for carrying the show. They've got a widget which you can install on your website that'll display the latest episode of the jazz session. And if you do that, please let me know because I'll mention you in my newsletter, as I did this week for dclivemusic.com, who installed the widget on their website. Also, if you look in the newsletter this week, you'll see the uh, link to get the widget because it's a little difficult to find on the AAJ website. But if you just uh, go to the All About Jazz, you can put in Jazz Session widget and it comes up pretty quickly. This week, if you're listening to this in real time on uh, November 14th, 2011, when this episode comes out, this week there will be three shows and then back to the regular two-show schedule next week uh, because last week, for some reason, I was only able to actually make one show. Because it was kind of a crazy week. So anyway, there'll be three this week and then uh, and then back to the regularly scheduled programming. My guest today is Andrea Wolper, who is a wonderful vocalist and poet and activist and has also become a, a good friend of mine, which I think will become apparent in this interview. And she's got a new CD called Parallel Lives. And I just want to mention that if you are, in fact, listening to this on November 14th or 15th or even 16th, 2011, Andrea is doing a CD release party here in New York on Wednesday, November 16th at 7 p.m. at uh, Zinc Bar, which is in Manhattan. And then she's playing again on the 20th, which is uh, Sunday, November 20th at 7.30 p.m. at Trumpets in Montclair, New Jersey. So Wednesday the 16th at 7 p.m. at Zinc Bar and Trumpets in Montclair, New Jersey on the 20th at 7.30 p.m. We'll hear the conversation with Andrea coming up in just a minute, but first, some music from Parallel Lives. Fly, silly seabird, no dreams may possess you. No voices can blame you for sun on your wings. My gentle relations have names they must call me for loving the freedom of all flying things. I came to the city and live like old Crusoe on an island of noise in a cobblestone sea. And the beaches were concrete, the stars paid a light bill, the blossoms hung faults from their store window trees. My dreams with the seagulls fly out of reach, out of My guest is Andrea Wolper, who has been on the jazz session before uh, as as the host. You're the 
in 300 and whatever episodes this is, the first host of the jazz session. No, you're the second host to ever be interviewed. I'm sorry, you're not even the first because I was the first. Now you've got me confused. You interviewed me, and I was the yes. host of the jazz session. So you're the, you are in a proud tradition of hosts of the jazz session. Yes, now I'm who have very proud. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really great to have you. Thanks. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you a bunch of embarrassing questions about really personal aspects of your life because Go it seems it. only fair after you did it to me. Uh, but actually, we're here to talk about the new record, which is Parallel Lives. And actually, I, I guess it's obvious, but I thought we could start right off with that title which you talk a little bit about in the notes in the in the record but it seems to me like it might be an expression an even larger expression of your life in some ways than just the balance of the kinds of musics that you play for example um it's it strikes me just from knowing you that you are kind of active in a lot of ways and not just as a musician but there are a lot of pieces of your life that that may hold equal weight and things that you really kind of care about as you move through the world some of which are related to the music and some of which aren't. I don't know if that's a fair statement or not. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, in terms of the title Parallel Lives, one thing I can say is that I'm really bad at coming up with titles. <laughs> <laughs> so I rack my brain and you have to come up with something. But I, something about that resonated with me. I think because what you said about me is true, that there are several things that are important to me that... Uh, make up part of my day and part of my world. But also, I I think I'm always thinking about um, the fluidity of time and space and the idea of, of um, the lives that we might be living, the choices that we make, and what if I had gone there instead of there? And uh, that kind of thing. And what what would my life be like today? I, I've always been, um, on some level, thinking about that question. And so, for me, that is somewhat captured in that that term, parallel lives. Did you imagine? Uh, I hadn't really planned to go in exactly this direction, but did you imagine a life in music for yourself? Early on, and I think I'm asking you a question to which I know the answer. But what do you think the answer is? I, I would think the maybe the answer is uh, yes, but that it took a while to get there. In a way, you're right. Yes, um, I mean I was always singing, really, from as, as long as I can remember. I was singing and making little shows, and when I was a kid, um, and high school and college and all that. But in terms of singing jazz and improvised music, uh, the the path that I'd say I've been on for the last something like 18 years, I, that did come later. And so whether I imagined a life for myself in music, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe not just specifically music. Do you feel... Uh, you You said that Jazz was kind of a a secret thing, or you know something you you were aware of. Yeah. Somehow, was it music that you were listening to sometimes, or how were you being exposed? Well, to yeah, it? you know, it was this thing where I, um, when I went to college, I I took two records from my parents' collections, two Ella Fitzgerald records that I listened to just to the point of 
insanity. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot, but do you remember which two? Names? I do. It wasn't that long ago. Well, well I didn't mean for that reason. <laughs> um, I do. Um, they yes, were on wax cylinders. Nicole, right? Nicole Porter songbook and mm. Ellen Berlin. So there was that, and then a little bit after that, um, I, I fell in love with Anita O'Day, and I listened to her a lot. So it was two jazz singers that I was listening to a lot at first. Um, but, no, I wasn't really getting deeply into jazz at that time. It, it was something that was more kind of out there that I didn't know that much about. Was there some, some catalyst or trigger that brought it more to the forefront of your musical consciousness? I think there was a, a point in my life where I was sort of transitioning from one thing to another thing to another thing, living some of my um, uh, serial parallel lives. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and I started, I hadn't been singing for a while. I started getting back into it and... Somebody said, look, why don't you go there? And I went there, and I had a chance to start listening to and exploring singing jazz and listening to people playing jazz. And so then I started going there and over there and and suddenly found myself in a place where I said, oh, yeah, this is, this is, this is where I want to be. This is probably what I was looking for and didn't even know it. Something like that. feel like you all of a sudden had to learn a totally other language? I mean, there's so much history. Well, maybe not a totally other language, but one of the things I did was starting, start to go to jam sessions mm -hmm. and getting my ass kicked because I, there was a lot I didn't know. Um, and I'm, I don't, I don't like to be stupid. Um, <laughs> good at it, but I don't like it. I was going to say, that's one way in which we differ. I actually really enjoy it. 
So I, I realized very quickly that there were a lot of things I had to fill in. There were things that I knew about music, and there were a lot of things that I didn't know. And so I realized that there was a lot of information and study that I needed to, to fill in. Were there some advantages to having performed and spent a lot of time listening to other kinds of music as you entered the jazz world more seriously? Well, I think the previous experiences I'd had performing um, were definitely helpful in that I'm usually very comfortable in front of an audience. Um, and also, I think for any kind of, any no matter what instrument you're playing, and no matter what kind of music you're playing, there's really something to be said for expressing something personal. I think there's a lot to be said for expressing something personal. And I think because of the experience that I'd had, which maybe I didn't mention, but as an actor, I don't know if I mentioned that. You did not. I did not. So I think that... Uh, was a way in for me into a song, into thinking of the emotional content of a lyric. But even when I'm improvising without words, um, I find that I have a desire to tap into some kind of uh, emotional expression, which doesn't mean that it's a lot of... Uh, of Sturm and Drang necessarily, it, but that, in other words, that I'm not just making noise for the sake of it, but that there's there's something that I'm trying to communicate, something I'm trying to feel or feeling that I'm expressing through music. Come, it must, but if it doesn't. If you're in the wrong place, thinking the wrong kind of thoughts, you could make the wrong choice. You could miss the mark. What if this is as good as it gets? Oh, well, you can't stand still, but you can't move forward with no map, no compass, no sense of direction. Can't help but wonder if the future starts tomorrow. Is it drifting on a smoke ring? In a book you haven't read In the summer The girls And their dresses The girls oh, And it looks like they're Can you talk about how that, that desire to find kind of an emotional core or a story uh, as it relates to the songs it informs the repertoire that's on Parallel Lives? Well, off the top of my head, to be honest, a lot of what informs the repertoire in Parallel Lives is just my desire to be kind of representative of what I do or some of what I do to show a bit of a range on my last CD, The Small Hours, um, although it wasn't intentional, it, that CD ended up being pretty um, moody. 
the repertoire, the overall feeling. And I, I like it. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but I did feel that while people who reviewed it and wrote about it mostly really liked it, I don't think, <laughs> I almost hate to go here, but I, I, I don't feel it was very helpful to me in terms of uh, getting gigs. <laughs> Because when people think of jazz vocal, a lot of times they want to hear so- something swinging. And, um, so it was sometimes a little frustrating to me that uh, if they didn't hear that there, then they might not trust that what they did hear was enough. I, I don't know. I don't know. But um, anyway, so on this one, on Parallel Lives, I just wanted to, for one thing, to make sure there was a little more variety and range, but really just to take a bunch of the songs that I've been doing that I love doing with the people that I love playing with and get into the studio and and get them down. And you have what sometimes these days is a luxury of performing with people that you perform with regularly. Can you talk about the band on this record? Yeah, I I mean, it is a luxury, and it's a luxury that I even feel like I don't get all the time because um, I don't always get to play with everybody, but if I say my band, these are the people. Um, The... I guess I'll, I'll go in order of how long I've been playing with them. Michael Howell, the guitarist, is the person that I've been playing with the longest. Um... And we met probably somewhere around 90, 1996 or something, and have been playing on and off since then. Um, and then Ken Filiano, bass player, we started playing together in 1998. He subbed on a gig, a little brunch gig I was doing with Michael. Um, and then I met um, T.A., Michael. Michael T.A. Thompson, oh God, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. And then, uh, and then Chris Davis, who I met uh, in Lisbon, Portugal, when um, Pedro Costa put us together, actually Ken and Chris and me, to play a concert. And just fell in love with her playing, as you heard me exclaim once in the middle of a gig. <laughs> I think I stopped in the middle of the gig today. I love you, Chris. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, so those are the people that for, I mean, Chris, it's, it's just been about two years, but that I that have been the people that I, that I play with whenever I get the chance. Um, and uh, I say I don't even always get to because a lot of the times there's no piano, so I don't get to play with Chris as much as I'd like. Um, or there are a lot of gigs that are trio gigs, sure, guitar, bass, voice, but not yes. to mention that these are also in, four incredibly busy musicians, so they're yeah. <laughs> they're spread pretty thin. It seems that's like right. these days, but yeah. you know, I have them all in retainer, so <laughs> that's yeah, good. that's a yeah, joke. Exactly, yes. jazz retainer, <laughs> jazz retainer. <laughs> they're all on jazz retainer. <laughs> yeah, they're bound together by strings of guilt. I think is how that works. <laughs> uh, maybe this is a dumb question, but why is it important? to you to maintain musical relationships over the long term? I don't think it's a dumb question. I think it's an interesting question. Um, Well, that'll vary it nicely for most of the things that I ask. So go ahead. 
Okay, and then we can talk about that <laughs> self-deprecation that you're just so fond of. Yeah, I know. Um, you wanted to ask me about it last time, and you didn't, and your opportunity has closed, my friend. <laughs> when there are people that I'm playing with over time, they get to know the music that I'm doing. We get to know one another. And this level of trust can develop that allows you to take chances, to stretch out in ways that might not happen otherwise. Um, you know, and I, do, I, don't, I don't do a lot of standards. I mean, I, I, there are gigs that are kind of standards-type gigs, and I do them. Um, but what's on the CDs, for example, there are originals, there are arrangements of mine that are not the standard arrangement of the tune. And some of them aren't things that you just want to hand somebody that's never seen them before. Uh, and the other thing is that so much, because so much of it is about the vibe. A lot of it is, yeah, there's what's on the page, but there's also what it's suggesting. Sure. And the vibe that I'm hoping to create. So when people have been, are familiar with the music, I think you can go there more easily. And then also, you know, it's like th these are the people who, who bring that, you know, bringing, um, I feel like I'm stumbling over my words, sorry, but uh, the people that I'm drawn to play with over and over I love who they are as musicians and people, and I love what they bring to the music that I'm doing. So uh, that sort of, I guess, synergistic relationship of, of them being themselves and bringing that to my music and at the same time having familiarity with my music and understanding hopefully what it is that I'm trying to express with it. Do you think that has helped you go in directions that you might not have gone otherwise because you feel the this kind of solid foundation under you? Probably. Something started happening that I'm, well, I'm going to say about mm, 10 or so years ago, Maybe it was happening before I just started to get aware of it, where I started really just starting to stretch out more and explore more. And I would think that the people I was playing with had something to do with that, um, and people that I was surrounding myself with musically um, had something to do with that. And I also think it just had something to do with um, with me, with something that was going on inside of me that maybe I wasn't even consciously aware of. Who will buy this wonderful morning? Such a sky and never did see. Who will tie it up with a ribbon and put it in a box for me? 
desire to to go out on a limb where it gets a little dangerous and discover a lot of um, joy and freedom out there as well as uh, uh, what's the, I, I need a word <laughs> I'm looking for a word <laughs> I don't know what it is but that combination when you go out on a limb of of fear and thrill and hopefulness and exploration and discovery and freedom yeah what's that word <laughs> yeah well I, I think maybe it takes more than one word and that I mean correct I hope I'm not stereotyping here but it seems like that is a harder path to travel for a vocalist than maybe for an instrumentalist that that desire to stretch out and to see where else a song can go rather than if you have for example no lyrics to deliver or or if you're just in a position you know horn players people kind of expect that and it seems to me like maybe it's a little less expected from a vocalist I don't, feel free to completely disagree with it no I think that might be true um You know, there are some people like, um, we talked a little bit about Jay Clayton. Sure. Who I think really navigates those waters so beautifully um, and who I really admire. Um, I think, I, I do sometimes find myself saying, boy, I, I'll listen to a horn player improvise and I'll say, boy, if a singer sang sang that note at that moment or made that kind of squawk or squeak <laughs> at that moment the singer would get slammed for it but somehow with the horn player it's okay we can and I do think saxophones I'm, I'm, as I'm saying this I'm thinking of saxophones because I think that for me saxophones and voices are close or the closest um, somehow but um and I don't know if it's just that in the whole jazz scene, people are just really hard on singers, or if it's that the human ear is so attuned to the voice that we're actually more aware of the flaws. You know, even all those people who, who think that, who love jazz and think they don't love, or say they don't love vocals, they're not interested in vocal jazz they're still human and I'm wondering are we all just so attuned to the voice that we're hypersensitive to notes that don't seem to fit or sound qualities that don't seem pleasant I don't know I don't know the answer I know that's um, the case for me that I have a much lower tolerance for singing I don't like than for instrumental playing that I don't like well, then I don't think we can be friends anymore. Well, luckily I like your singing, so it all works out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. That's a huge weight off your shoulders, I'm sure. But I think it's, I think, to go back to your question, I think the other thing, is it is it harder for a vocalist to, to do that? In a way, it's hard for me. I, I really don't know about other vocalists. In a way, it's hard for me because I 
can be very critical of what I hear when I hear myself. So I can really enjoy doing what I do, but if I've recorded it and I heard it back, I might um, judge it somewhat harshly. Sure. Just like all those other people right. I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Are there some moments on Parallel Lives, I, I know we've talked about this a little bit, outside the context of this show, just exchanging tweets or whatever, but are there some moments on Parallel Lives that make you particularly happy when you listen back to them, or some things that surprised you while you were recording it? Well, there was one tune that in the studio um, it became a complete surprise, and that's the first tune, the first track, which is Joni Mitchell's Song to a Seagull. Because I had worked on this arrangement of that for, um, I started a, a few years ago, and I, 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 didn't, I worked on it, and I didn't get it, and I put it away and moved on with my life, and then I pulled it out again and worked on it some more, and at that point, actually, um, had been starting to make plans to do this recording but it was still probably a year before the recording happened and pulled this out and we were working on it again and I put it away again and then in preparation for this recording I pulled out Song to a Seagull, got my, my arrangement finished, we rehearsed it and we went into the studio and it, it, it just wasn't happening. It, something wasn't happening. And so um, at one point, Todd Barkin, who co-produced, said, why don't you do it as a ballad? Which it wasn't, which my arrangement was not. He said, why don't you do it as a ballad? Fly, silly seabird, no dreams may possess you. No voices can blame you for sun on your wings. My gentle relations have names they must call me for loving the freedom of all flying things. And then we said, oh, okay, let's try it. And so without really discussing it further or, or deciding how we were going to turn it from what it had been into a ballad, I just started singing, and then one by one, they all started playing, and it ended up a track that was completely different. I mean, it's still the uh, the changes that I wrote, it's still the chord changes that I wrote, but um, completely different otherwise, and uh, and I like it. <laughs> but that was a big surprise. That was a big surprise. Um, and I'll throw one in because okay. I told you about this online uh, that I can't remember exactly in what witty way I phrased it, but I, I mentioned that Skylark has been recorded, you know, 875 million times. Yes. And that, and generally, if I turn a record over and I see Skylark on the back, I think, oh, okay, well, here's a record that I'll get to sometime. And by <laughs> sometime, I mean, you know, when hell freezes over. So, um, <laughs> But of course, I was already contractually obligated to listen to this record, so I, <laughs> I did. And the version of Skylock on here is beautiful. And the the thing about it 
that I, in addition to just liking it and thinking it's beautiful, it it was kind of useful for me to remember that there still is beauty, even in tunes that have been both recorded wonderfully and also, in the case of Skylark, recorded both wonderfully and in a million hackneyed versions also. But, I mean, you were able to approach a tune everyone has heard, well, no one has heard below a certain age, but everyone of a certain age has heard, and still find something else in it. Did you expect that was the case? Uh, I mean, what is it What is it that makes you go to a tune that's been recorded that many times and say, oh, well, what the world needs is one more version right. of Skylark? Yeah, really. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because it's a very simple version. I mean, it's pretty, it's just uh, very, to me, a very straightforward, simple reading of it. And I did have some questions about whether or not I should put it on there for the reasons you're talking about. Yeah, we don't need yet another recording of Skylark. And I mean, there's a whole list of tunes like that. But I just love that tune. I just love it. I love to sing it. Um, It really touches me. I think as a song goes, it's kind of perfect. And so I did it. And I just thought, well, I think it's the only really overdone standard. There are a few other tunes on here that might be considered standards. But this is the only one that's, I think, <laughs> done to death. So I, I gave myself that, basically, because I just love it. This didn't really occur to me until just now, uh, until you said that it's such a straight, straightforward rendition of it, which it is. I think actually it might be, you know, kind of like a jewel that shines in its setting a little bit too, where it's surrounded by these really creative arrangements and you know things that take a lot of left turns, and then Skylark is pretty much just a read down of the melody. Right. And I think there's something. There's something about the effect of what's around it, too, that makes when you get to Skylark on the record, because it's four tunes in, uh, that makes the you know that moment when you get to it on the record, I think it gives it a little more power, a little more emotional depth, if you consider this as an album rather than just a collection you know, right. of songs. And I do, you know, I do spend a lot of time sequencing, um, so it's interesting to hear that. 
and I hadn't thought of it that way. But um, I did. I wondered whether I should take it off because it is so overdone. I did question whether I should even keep it on. Um, and at one point, I asked Ken if what he thought should should I take this off. And he said, "No, it it has." A, I, I, no, I, I think I, I wondered whether it was special enough or whether I had, because it's so done. And he felt that there was, some, there was enough of whatever I was trying to capture in there that it was worth keeping it on. So, and it is, to my surprise, it's getting played on the radio. It, to my surprise, just because what I hear from people who supposedly know these things is that they're tired of getting female jazz vocal standards <laughs> but it's getting played so will you uh another one of my favorite tracks in this record that i was hoping you could tell me something about is maple sugar boy will you tell me about that yeah song? i like that one that's one of my favorites that doesn't get played at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah well what do we know i guess <laughs> that that actually is not a song that i had been singing um i didn't know the song it's uh, by fee saint marie song I didn't I didn't know it um, but it came to me through Anders Nelson can't exactly remember how, but somehow this handwritten chart of uh, Maple Sugar Boy was presented to me. And thank you, Anders, if you're listening. Um, and I fell in love with it and uh, just put a, little, put a little chart together and um, tried it out a couple different ways. And uh, and ended up doing it as a duo with Chris, and yeah, I like it. It's it's one of my. I mean, it's weird to say that in a way about your own stuff. I like it, but I happen to like that track. It's it's interesting that the, I think that my two favorite moments on this record are Skylark and Maple Sugar Boy mm. because in many ways they are the two, maybe the two most like stripped down yeah. moments on the record. But there's something about the. The Maple Sugar Boy, I told you, reminded me of the Michael Odanchi poem, uh, The Cinnamon Peeler. Oh, that's right. 
and uh, they don't actually share that much content, but there's something about that. There's something about the kind of powerful simplicity of those expressions that always really gets me. I, I like I like artful expressions of passion too, but sometimes it's nice when people just come out and say things. Yeah. Um, and Maple Sugar Boy and also Skylark strike me on this record as examples of just coming out and saying something just saying this is this is the song and it's okay just for it to be this yeah yeah i agree i mean the songs themselves i think skylark is a little more let's say high concept sure the lyrics and the harmony yeah definitely uh, maple sugar boy the lyrics are really really simple and very straightforward and of course sometimes something that that's you could say unsophisticated doesn't really have much power but i think in this case it does and that there's a lot of uh, emotional power or potential emotional power in those very simple lyrics and um it it really resonated with me it, i mean it actually triggered a, a memory a very specific memory of something when i was like Oh gosh, I mean a young teenager. Sixteen or something. I guess that's a middle teenager. <laughs> <laughs> a memory you can share or a, a private memory that I shouldn't be asking about? Yeah, it's a private memory, but it's not even that exciting a memory, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but it had some specific it's just that emotional resonance. When you're 16, yeah. you know, like everything is really intense yeah, and, yeah. And, and powerful. So I'm it's 38, more like that. and I still feel exactly that way, which many of my friends tell me is a problem. So <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you now a, a question that you asked me uh, when you interviewed me, which is to tell me about about poetry and its its kind of resonance in your life, and and also, I mean, you're someone who makes explicit use of it in your music so maybe you can talk about that too yeah well I've always been writing uh, I was always writing in various ways and I had something of a career as a freelance writer during and actually going to be doing a little writing again um, started writing poetry at some point I don't write poetry as prolifically or frequently as you do. <laughs> it tends to kind of come and go for me. Um, but, oh, yeah, I mean, we did talk about that with your interview, just the, the power of the power of a well-written poem. It's just, uh, well, I think, as I said to you, it's hard for me to put into words what, what it, that means because... That's the whole trick with good poetry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Putting into words something impossible. Um, and I've taken some poems and set them to music. Uh, one is on the small hours called Rendezvous in Providence, which is by a, a poet named D for Dennis, Nerxy, who was the first poet laureate of Brooklyn and who's someone I happen to know through Amnesty International. Um, and I just fell in love with this poem of his and set it to music. And uh, a couple other things that I've worked on too, a Walt Whitman poem and uh, some other things. And, and of course, I write songs with lyrics, some without lyrics, but some with lyrics. So um, whether or not those qualify as poems, I don't know. Some rhyme. <laughs> I'm making a joke. <laughs> um, 
And there's also a, a spoken word element uh, and there's, to yes. some of your musical performances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the tunes in here, here, there's, right, a, exactly. there's a spoken word section. And then sometimes I'll just use, it depends on, on the gig, I'll sometimes do poetry, whether it's mine or someone else's, with music. And then there's um, also uh, something that maybe we'll talk about at another time, but just briefly, a trio I'm part of with Connie Crothers and Ken Filiano called Transformation that's entirely improvised music. But a lot of times I end up improvising words. And um, so that's a whole other thing that's been happening as well. Yeah, words seem to be... uh, important to me <laughs> <laughs> i use them a lot <laughs> sometimes uh, when i shouldn't <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah uh can you talk about uh upcoming cd release shows yes thank you for asking my pleasure you know you gotta get the butts in the chairs <laughs> yes that's exactly right <laughs> yes um november 16th the quintet with michael Ken, T.A., Chris, and me, will be at the Zinc Bar in Greenwich Village, November 16th, two sets, 7 and 8 o'clock. And then November 20th, which is a Sunday, we'll be at Trumpets in Montclair, New Jersey. I think it's 7.30 and 9.15, but um, don't trust me. It's on my website and their website. Um, so yes, I hope people will come and, and hang out with us and um, and hear what we're doing. It's interesting because in, in a lot of ways, I mean, this CD is kind of a, an encapsulation of the live things you were already doing. So it's not as if the CD release show is like some new venture, you know, well, okay, now we'll see what this music sounds like live. I mean, this CD really is an expression of what you already of this kind of very tight working relationship you have with this with this band, which I think is kind of nice. Yeah, uh, although there may be other things that end up happening in this gig that... Uh-oh. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, look at you. You, look, you have no, a very no. evil expression no. on your face right now. <laughs> there may be other things that end up happening, yes. if you know what I mean. <laughs> Yes, another no, moment I think where there I may be other repertoire. There may be some new things. I, I don't know yet. It's an all meatloaf show. You can just tell people. Come on, Andrea. You heard Actually, it here first. Actually, you know what? We're now a Grateful Dead tribute band. <laughs> That's not nearly as exciting as the entire Bat Out of Hell album performed by this by this quintet. So I, I definitely, I'm, pu- I'm pulling for meatloaf. But if you need to do the dead, that's fine. Well, I got to tell you something. I don't even know what the Bad Out of Hell album is. If I had big, a blank look on my face, His that's big why. Paradise okay. by the Dashboard Light and everything. Yeah, I don't know. I'm Meatloaf. This I is not know. my era, dear. Come on, let's not... Don't give me a hard time. <laughs> I'm reaching back into the archives for that joke. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, before we finish, uh, about another kind of large part of your life, which is your activism. Um, are you comfortable saying... Something about that, and just tell us kind of some of the things that you're involved in. Sure. Um, yeah, I've just I keep I think I keep answering your questions by saying I've always. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've kind of always, so it feels, uh, been involved in some sort of 
human rights or political, or I should say, and or political and or feminist and or fill in the blank activism. Uh, I think that I grew up with some kind of understanding that I needed to uh, be aware of the wider world. You know, even if it was just going to Sunday school every year during those grammar school years and getting, you know, change to put in this little charity box, that kind of thing. Things that my parents were involved with that had an influence on me, maybe the times that I grew up in, the different things that had an impact on my life, uh, it just made me feel that I, I had to, to engage in not just the my immediate world, which I think compared to a lot of people, I mean, I can bitch and moan about a lot of things, but compared to what a lot of people go through in life, my life is pretty comfortable. Um, and I could even say very comfortable, really, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. I, it just seems to be something that's a given for me. I don't even know if I've made any sense or answered your question at all. <laughs> I think yes and yes. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm more confident about the second yes than the first yes, but okay. yes, I think so. I think to be yes a little more specific, maybe that'll help too. To be a little more specific, um, I've been involved with Amnesty International for many, many years. Uh, other nonprofit type orgs, organizations um, as well. I, I mentioned Amnesty because. With Amnesty, you can belong to a local group and get as involved as you want in in activism filtered through what comes from there, uh, sort of mothership in London. Um, but I've been involved with other organizations again, and even, you know, nowadays there's so much you can do online, right? I get a million emails a day, it seems, asking me to sign this petition, and call my uh, my my representatives about this or that but before that was happening there was I, I started a little online network called interaction because I was getting a lot of actions by mail and I would uh, turn them into emails and have had a little simple website and would send them out to people I know and say you know please call your member of Congress about this and that sort of thing, or write a letter, you know, print this letter and send it, that kind of thing. So that's just that's just always been part of my, maybe even my day, at least my, my week, my life. Um, very passionate about, about politics and as um, despairing as I am sometimes about what goes on politically, I just, voting is like, I realized, I think, two primary elections ago or, or something when I was sitting weeping with the, at, trying to mark my ballot because I just couldn't decide who to vote for. I was debating, and I really couldn't decide clearly which one to vote for. And it, it's, I realized this is, this is like religion to me. And I feel like even if you... Um, you know, 
even if you don't like any of the candidates, write in who you like. You know, I'm just passionate about that because there are people who who uh, still don't have the right to vote. There are people in the world who, who don't vote. There are people in this country who maybe have to really go out of their way to vote. Who I have a, a picture on my bulletin board of I think it's in Kentucky of a voting place in rural Kentucky, and it's just this little shack in the middle of the nowhere of nowhere. And you know, people had to really go to a lot of trouble to get there. Women didn't have the vote until 1920, not even 100 years ago. In black a lot of states, men, felons still can't vote. People who were convicted right? of felonies are disenfranchised. Black men in this country got the vote sooner than any women, but, you know, a long time ago. So I just feel like you got to vote. So there's my, my speech. Is there any place where your politics and your music intersect? Um, in some ways, I've kept them pretty separate. Partly because um, it's just singing songs is something that makes me happy. And it doesn't always have to be about politics. I'm not a protest singer. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily write music about issues. If I move, if I move to, I will, but mostly I don't. Um, and I do think that People who are artists have the right to express their opinions. I don't. I know sometimes people think that artists shouldn't have opinions and should just shut up and do their art. And I don't think that because we're all in this world together, so we all have a right to express our opinions. At the same time, um, if someone comes to hear me sing, I don't think they've come there to hear me go on and on about issues. Uh, if there's a reason that something comes up, I'm pretty loose, you know, on stage. So if there's a reason something comes up, I might go there. But in some ways, they're kind of separate. Um, but in other ways, for me, just in sort of in, in terms of how I feel inside of myself, they're not separate because they're they're both there mm -hmm. all the time. They are, in a sense, parallel lives, one might they say. They are parallel lives. You could say that. <laughs> Man, I'm good. You are. I should host a show. <laughs> there is one song on the CD that I didn't write. It was written by Bob Casanova, and uh, it's called Why Aren't You Laughing? And that's a song that I think is very appropriate for things that are going on right now. It's very much about the haves and the have-nots and why when we have so much, when there's there's so much abundance, whether it's in this country or the world, he doesn't specify, how is it that some people can have so much and some people can have so little? And given that uh, all that's going on these days, it feels very timely. And it's a, it's a terrific song. I, his arrangement of it, well, he did a very straightforward recording of it that's beautiful. I did a different arrangement of it. I felt I had to find another way. His his performance is beautiful, Bob Casanova. The CD is called Parallel Lives. He segued, and uh, my guest is Andrea Wolper. It's, uh, as always, a pleasure to talk to you, and I thank you for doing it. Thanks, Jason.
such a thing can happen here with all this milk and honey. seconds and thirds while others are denied but poor little world it hurts in so many places is this what the human race is afraid to show our faces that's music from andrea wolper's new cd parallel lives I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Modat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This show is member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please do become a member. There's also a special deal going on right now for the next two people who join at the middle or top level, either yearly or monthly. You'll receive a copy of Anthony Wilson's new DVD CD set, Seasons, which captures a live performance he did with Steve Cardenas, Julian Lodge, and Chico Pinero. And they performed a piece that Anthony wrote for a quartet of custom guitars built by John Monteleone. It was, a, a, I think, a one-time-only show, and it was captured on DVD and CD. And if you join, as I said, at the top or middle level, yearly or monthly, I'll send you a copy of that DVD CD set for the next two folks to do that. So now that we all know how to get a copy of some free music and how to support the show, it is now time, in fact, to turn off all this digital madness and go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.